Thank you for listening to the Sermon on the Mount, God's Everyday Kingdom, a sermon series from Doxa Church. Join us each week as we explore God's vision for human flourishing in His kingdom. For more information, visit us Sunday mornings in Bellevue at 9 and 11 a.m. or online at doxa-church.com. Seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him. And he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Matthew 5, 1 through 3. This is the word of the Lord. Please be seated. So we're going to look at Matthew 5 together. If you have your Bibles, you can look there. It'll also be on the screen. I want to just start in verse 1 and 2. Seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain. And when he sat down, his disciples came to him. And he opened his mouth and taught them, saying. Now, before we go any further, Matthew is clearly presenting Jesus as the fulfillment of Moses and his ministry of revelation to God's people. So this is, in a sense, Jesus is the better Moses. uh, And what we're going to find out is Jesus is also the fulfillment of the law. uh, That he actually fulfills and obeys perfectly the law that God gave so that he could be for us a perfect righteousness. Now, if you read the first four chapters, you'll see this parallel, uh, and you can maybe look at this later, uh, between Moses' life and Jesus' life, you would see that their events in their life uh, really line up remarkably. They both have dreams connected to their birth. Both are spared from mass slaughter as children, fleeing from their land only to return safely in God's perfect timing. They both go through a temptation in the wilderness, 40 days of nights of fasting on a mountain of revelation, and then they pass through the Jordan River, and now we see Jesus on a mountain. So if you're Jewish and you see all that, you go, I think I know what Matthew's trying to do. He's trying to get our mindset on Jesus as the true and better Moses, bringing to us the law of God, or another way of saying it, is bringing to us the way of life that God intends for us to live, the life that is fully living. Now, throughout the ancient world, high places were seen as the place where gods would reveal and gods would speak. And in his, Israel's history, that's no different. And so, in their minds, not only would they be thinking Moses, but they'd specifically be thinking Mount Sinai where God gave the Ten Commandments and the additional laws that followed for how God's people were to live. So every Jewish person is thinking, okay, he's on the mountain. They're reading this, you know, later. He's on the mountain. Okay, Matthew wants us to see a messianic revelation that Jesus is the revelation of God and the fulfillment of the law for how we are to now live. That's what they would be hearing. He is a picture of what God's like. Jesus himself says, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. And then what Jesus is about to give them is, here's what life looks like. Here is the way you're intended to live. Now, it starts, the sermon starts on the mountain. If you follow all of Matthew, after the sermon, you begin to see Jesus' ministry work itself out in light of the sermon. And then eventually he's led to suffer and die on the cross for our sins, rise again on the third day. And then he directs them in Matthew 28, 16. It says he directed them to meet him at the mountain. So you've got these bookends of the mountains. 
starting with the delivery of what we're going to go through all year long, and then the ending with his commission to make disciples. And this is what he says on that mountain at the end of his ministry before he ascends to heaven. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations. That could also be translated ethne, all people groups, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. Without a doubt, Jesus is referring to this sermon, the commands he gives in this sermon. Now, probably more than that, because he gave commands along the way after this sermon, but definitely not less than this. He would, he would be bringing them to the mountain to, in a sense, hearken them back to this moment where they would remember we were there on the mountain, this mountain, and this is what Jesus told us. Now, I happen to be on that mountain uh, a while ago. I went to Israel, got to go at least to where they believe the Sermon on the Mount was delivered. It was pretty amazing to have someone read the entire thing, imagining that we were there with Jesus. It's a bit of an amphitheater style. You can look out and see the, the Sea of Galilee. And I, I just, I was overcome with a, a sense of gratitude and emotion and even a sense of God's presence saying, yes, Jesus walked here. Jesus spoke here. This is what he said. So I, I'd love for all of you to have that experience if you could. Uh, and that, actually, we went out on the Sea of Galilee later and, and it was thankfully a calm night. And so we just imagined being on that sea after Jesus calmed the sea. And some of our musicians were with us and had beautiful voices and they just sang a cappella worship on the sea as we just imagined being in the boat with Jesus. It was powerful. So Jesus gives this message to help them understand how they are to live as his people. And he uses a word that got translated blessed, but we are going to translate it flourishing. So look at verse three. Flourishing are the poor, or blessed are the poor in spirit, for, or the word can be translated, because theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Okay? This is where we begin. Now, most translations, like I said, if you look at your Bibles, translated the word blessed, and we call these the Beatitudes, as a result, but the Greek word is makarios. Now, I don't do this a lot, but I think it's important that we just, we just look at the historical context. I want to reveal a little bit to you. I want you to see what's going on here. In the original historical context of this sermon, which we would know as first century Judaism, known as a time that they would call second temple Judaism, which is actually the time between the, the construction of the temple in 515 BC and its destruction in 70 AD by the Romans. This term, second temple Judaism, was a term meant to distinguish how first century Jews would conceive of their faith relative to other eras, other periods of time. It'd be like us saying, as post uh, Postmodern enlightenment people, how do we look at evangelicalism? How do we understand our faith at probably differently than we might have 100 or 200 or 300 years ago? It's the same kind of concept. And they were deeply influenced in this day, language and culture, by Greek virtue ethics, Aristotle in particular. And by second, uh, second Temple Jewish wisdom literature. So those two things are coming together. Like, what does it look like to live with wisdom in this context in light of our faith? 
And how do we do that in a way that we can speak into the culture in terms of their language and ethics? Now, some of you might go, so you're telling me Jesus was influenced by his culture? And I'd say, absolutely. He didn't come as a detached God into the world and somehow just remain outside of it. He actually was born as a real man in a real place in a real time, and he took on real flesh, and he, he learned the culture. He understood it well enough to speak into it using its language, using its, its kind of understanding of reality. Now, I want to pause and say, as missionaries, as people, Doxa, who are sent to a world that desperately needs to meet Jesus, we need to learn from Jesus in learning how to listen well, learning how to understand the the language of our culture, learning how to understand the stories of our friend because we want to be people who can speak the good news of Jesus in a time and place in a way that makes sense to that time and place. Amen? That's something we want to learn how to do. So, Jesus is doing that, and the reason why I say that is because it's going to help us understand how to read this text. In other words, the big idea of the day in Greek virtue ethics is that there is a direct link between your actions and your character. Who you are is revealed by what you do. So this discussion of the day around ethics centered more on character, more on being, than just on actions, as we'll come to see in how Jesus then delivers this message. Because we're going to see in the Beatitudes specifically, Jesus is talking about the kind of people who are blessed, not just the kinds of actions that are blessed. That's really, really important as we understand that. That's the reason why we have, with other theologians, agreed that the best way to translate this passage is to use the word flourishing, where we've often heard the word blessed. So that, that we're truly flourishing. Well, why, why do we do that? Because if we're not careful, we can make the word blessed sound like a transactional statement, right? So it could sound like this later on. Uh, if you make peace with others, God will call you his son or daughter. So that we can make an, an if statement, a conditional statement, an uh, if-then uh, kind of equation, But that would be very far away from the truth of the gospel because in the truth of the gospel, God is not waiting for you to act. God acts before you do. God isn't waiting for you to clean yourself up so that he'll accept you. He, through his son, dying on the cross, forgives you of your sins to make you acceptable before you even know that you need him. I mean, the the reality of the gospel is that God blesses you when you don't deserve it, so you'll be blessed to be a blessing. That's, that's how it works. So his work precedes our work. His work precedes our belief even. And so we want to make sure we get that right in how we teach this, that Jesus is abundantly clear that the place where we begin is not with your perfection, not with your performance, not with your ability to be religiously put together. He's starting with poverty. He's starting with Nothing. Don't miss that. When it comes to being people who are truly flourishing, living life as it is meant to be, Jesus is saying it begins with nothing in you. Jesus, as Jonathan Pennington says, Jesus' macarisms, that's another way of saying the Greek word makariso, macarisms are grace-based their wisdom invitations to human flourishing in God's coming kingdom. 
each of the blessed statements or macarisms are a description of what flourishing looks like, what life as a human in the kingdom of God as Jesus is revealing it should look like. In other words, what life as shalom really was meant to be. And it's always connected, as Jesus teaches, to a a kind of wisdom statement with a future hope of God's fulfillment and what he will do. That's that's really important. This is a, a wisdom statement about what God will do and what human flourishing looks like if you walk in light of all that God is and has done in Jesus Christ. He continues to talk about that as a life that Jesus is offering as a way of truly being in the world. Listen to what he says. As prophet and sage, Jesus is offering and inviting his hearers into the way of being in the world that will result in their true and full flourishing now and in the age to come. Jesus is offering for you and I a way of living. He's saying, if you want to know what it really means to flourish, what it means to truly be human, to experience the kind of blessed life, I'm going to let you know what that life looks like. I'm going to let you know what those people are like that really understand flourishing. Now what's interesting about Jesus' statements is that each one of those statements seems to be, at least to our ears and to the world, the opposite of flourishing. And it seems paradoxical in nature. Flourishing are the poor in spirit. Flourishing are the meek. Flourishing are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. But Dallas Willard in his book, Divine Conspiracy, says that Jesus is basically reordering our way of thinking about who is invited in, who the kingdom of God is for, who God is for. See, in that particular day and age, the rich, the healthy, the put together were considered blessed by God. It was considered, that was the picture of flourishing. And so Jesus is going, I'm gonna let you know the poor, both physically and spiritually, are flourishing. Why? Because there's the kingdom of heaven, which we'll come back to in a minute. But what he's saying is, the people that are truly blessed are the, in some ways, what seems to be opposite to our faculties as we think about the world. I mean, we think about the last time you thought of somebody who had really uh, maybe a lot of wealth or maybe uh, they had seemed like their life was put together or they had a lot of material possessions and you said, man, those people are really blessed. You ever said that to your, in your mind? And you immediately equated blessing with wealth, blessing with health, blessing with things being all put together and in their order. And what Jesus is saying is, no, it doesn't begin there. It begins with the evidence of unhealth, with the awareness of poverty, the, the understanding that you are in need. That's where it begins. That's where the flourishing life starts, is in the awareness of your need for Jesus. See, poverty of spirit is necessary to receive the kingdom of God. In order to receive, you must be in need. We must be emptied, as it were, of anything else so that we might be filled with the one who truly is life. It's important for us to know that Jesus starts the entire sermon with poverty of spirit. He's wanting to cast a vision for you and I 
of what life in the kingdom looks like. The kind of flourishing that God has for us. And as we listen to each one of Jesus' coming statements and commands, if you're honest in the coming weeks, if you'll be honest with yourself, you'll have to say, I am spiritually impoverished. When you hear, blessed are those who hunger and thirst after righteousness, and you go, but I don't. That's because you are in need. When you hear, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, you go, I can't. Then you'll be glad you heard this first message. Because you'll say, I need to start with I can't. I need to start with I don't. I need to start with I haven't. I don't have, I'm lacking, I'm in need. That's the beginning point. And you're gonna come right back to it over and over and over again. In fact, the cycle of the kingdom of God is that God brings you to a picture of what life should look like in the person and work of Jesus Christ, calls you to live like him, then you find out you can't, and so then you realize you need, and therefore you go to the one who can, which is Jesus Christ for you. That's how it works. That's, that's flourishing in the kingdom is to continually be aware of your spiritual poverty apart from Christ and realize that Christ is the fullness of God for you in your poverty. Because in the kingdom of God, neediness is the key to fullness. Neediness is the key to fullness. Only empty vessels can be filled. Only a person in need can receive. It's only when I perceive that I am completely impoverished spiritually to attain to true humanity that I will look to the one who is truly human for me and who did what I cannot do. And that's Jesus Christ. You know why Jesus is not very attractive to some people? Maybe even you? Because you don't yet see your need for him. You don't realize he's sufficient for your spiritual poverty, that he comes to fill you with riches of righteousness. There's some of you in this room even who don't yet understand your spiritual poverty and until you do, you will not experience the kind of flourishing God wants for your life. This, by the way, family, is why confession is such a key part of our spiritual practice. What are we doing when we're confessing? We're not just confessing sin, we're confessing what we know to be true of God and how we fall short of living the life that is truly human, that is truly flourishing. And as we confess it out loud, we're saying, not only do I confess that I'm not living the life that is truly human, truly flourishing, but I'm confessing that I need one who did. And as I confess my own need, I also confess his sufficiency to meet my need so that in him, I might actually experience life as it was meant to be lived. The poor in spirit inherit the kingdom. Paul tells us this is how it works. We go, Jeff, I don't get it. Why, does it. why do I have to become poor to become rich? Well, because he who is rich became poor so that in his poverty you might become rich. Paul says in 2 Corinthians 8, 9, for you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, and when he uses that word rich, he doesn't mean just financially rich. That's not what he's talking about. He's talking about rich in righteousness, that he was the fullest, the fullest expression of God's glory. He fully submitted himself to God's will. He fully obeyed everything in the law perfectly for you and I. Paul says it in another place that Jesus who knew no sin became sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. He was rich, yet for your sake, on the cross, he became poor so that you, by his poverty, 
might become rich in righteousness. Jesus at the cross took on all of the ways we fall short, all the ways we don't flourish, all the ways we don't live as God's people in the way he intended. He took it all on himself. He took our sin on himself. And on the cross, he suffered and he died for you and me. And he didn't just suffer and die that our ransom might be paid, that our forgiveness might be offered, but he did it so that he also could take the very things that keep you from flourishing and bring them to the grave and leave them in the pit and have authority and power over them when he raised, was raised from the dead so that he could say, I have fullness of life for you. I am righteousness for you. I am life for you. Jesus at one point says, if you want to have life that's truly life, life that's fully abundant, you need to know that I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father but through me. How do you know if you're flourishing? You know you're needy, and you know that he's sufficient to meet your need. You're aware of your spiritual poverty, you, 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 you understand that you can't do anything in and of yourself to make yourself any better, to make yourself any fuller. You realize that only Jesus is for you perfect humanity, full flourishing. In fact, by the way, if you know that you know, you know that you're needy, and you know you know you're needy, you will become aware of even your attempts to try and fill yourself up with your own strength, with your own power, with your own spiritual activity. One of the things that I love and hate about relationships, you heard me right, one of the things that I love and hate about relationships is that they reveal how spiritually needy I am. I love that, and yet I, I don't like that. I don't like facing my spiritual poverty. I don't like becoming aware of my brokenness. More recently, God is showing me I'm, I'm not as loving as I thought. I'm not as present with my wife and my kids as I want to be, really. I really want to be. And yet, if you talk to them, they would say, Sometimes, they might say more than sometimes, dad is on his brown leather chair with his computer and his coffee or a nice beverage, fully engaged in anything but mom or kids. And I'm learning a lot about my own spiritual poverty lately. And I... I could, I could despise that. I could live in self-hatred or shame. I could beat myself up. I could work to try harder. Or I could say, flourishing are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom. I could say, Lord, thank you for opening my eyes to my need. Thank you for showing, myself, showing me my selfishness and my pride, my impatience, my lack of, of, of love. Thank you. The reality is, if, if you can't embrace the truth about your need, then you can't enter into receiving what you need through Jesus Christ. See, confession is your way of saying, I am in need and you are sufficient. I am broken and you heal. I am sinful and you forgive. I, I am lacking, but you are enough. 
Confession is a way of saying, I have a deep, deep need that only Jesus can fulfill. And as I confess it out loud, I'm entering into life that is flourishing. See, if you think life is flourishing when you never have to own your sin, when you actually can present a perfected version of yourself to a public that's watching, when you, as many of us on the east side do, you try to say, how do I put the best foot forward, the best face on, the best wardrobe, the best car, whatever it may be, so that I can make an impression. And the Bible doesn't call that flourishing. The Bible calls that striving. And it's, it's killing some of you. You're not free. You know when you're really flourishing, when you can say, yep, here's where I'm broken, here's where I'm messed up, here's where I need a savior, and here's where he's enough. This last uh, week, my family and I found ourselves in the doctor's office, all of us, getting checked all at the same time. Janie had strep throat. Don't worry, she's sitting in the front row and, and on antibiotics and doing great now. So don't have to worry about it, she's not gonna get you sick. But as soon as the doctor found it, she had it, she said, you gotta bring them all in. Now, she could have said, you know what, I'm really angry that you showed me that I have strep throat. I mean, I've been coughing, sore throat, in pain all week long. I, I know life isn't meant to be like this, but I, I don't want you to tell me why it's this way. I don't want you to tell me I'm sick. But the good news is she's told she's sick and there's a medicine. And so, that's a flourishing moment when she goes, I know it's wrong, and now I can get help. Now, the, the comedy was when all of us are sitting in the doctor's office, one of us after another, getting on the table, and then the doctor checking us out in front of each other, and all of us are getting the swab to make sure we don't have strep throat, and thankfully none of us did, uh, but we all a little bit sick this week, so we all got on some medication. And in that moment, I'm not walking out of the doctor's office going, I really hate doctors. I wish they wouldn't tell us the truth about ourselves. And I wish they wouldn't provide a means for us to get better. Now, in those moments when you discover why you're not feeling well, you're thankful that there's a cure. Amen? You know what the Holy Spirit is? The Holy Spirit is the divine physician coming to tell you, you need help. God is showing up, maybe today for you, going, you know what, you're not flourishing if you can't even face the fact that you're needy. If you can't face the fact that you need a savior. If you can't confess out loud where you fall short, if you can't own the reality of your own brokenness and sin, if you can't say, yes, I've been wounded by sin and I wound people with my sin, if you can't say that, then you're not flourishing. Because if you can't say that, then you can't acknowledge that you need somebody like Jesus to be for you what you can't be on your own. In order to really flourish, you've got to see the truth. That apart from Christ, you are spiritually impoverished people. And so am I. You know, if we're going to live in community on mission together, you're going to face the truth about yourself. Some of you are going, no, it's, it's amazing. That's because you've only been at it for a short time. <laughs> and some of you are going, the reason why, Jeff, I don't want to be in community, the reason why I love to live in isolation is because I don't want anybody to know how broken I am. Or I don't want my brokenness to be revealed when I'm with people because it's a lot easier to tell myself I'm really good when I'm with nobody because my impatience and my lack of love or forgiveness never shows up in isolation. But as soon as I'm in community with people, it's gonna show up. 
And it's a gift, by the way. In fact, some of you are still in isolation, and I want to tell you, you're not flourishing if you're in isolation because you're not aware of how badly you need Jesus. Those of you, you know, who are married, you know what I'm talking about, right? The longer I'm married, the more I realize I'm broken more than I ever knew when I first got married. Some of you aren't yet married. Hey, you think marriage is gonna be amazing? It's a gift from God, and it's a mirror that has a magnifying glass on it that will show you the truth of how needy you are, and that's a good thing. It's a gift from God. And then the good news in this is if you realize you're spiritually impoverished, you also get to realize the riches of heaven in Christ Jesus are yours to be poured out into your poverty. Do you know uh, when they discover people who are starving and have been without food for a very long time, they can put a meal right in front of them and they won't eat it. Because what has to happen, first of all, is they actually have to have their body kick into gear the hunger so that they actually want the food. And they usually just put a little honey on their tongue to kind of reenact all the things in their body to get their system working right so they'll actually be hungry and then they'll actually want the meal. You know what the Spirit of God does in each one of your lives? He's like honey on the tongue that says, can I just give you a little taste of what life could be like so that you'll hunger for it, so that you'll realize that you don't have it yet? My prayer for you, if you're new to the faith, is that God will open your eyes to help you see that the life you've been living isn't flourishing. It's not the life he intends for you. He has so much more for you than what you've settled for. But you know what? If all you've ever known is poverty, you get used to it. I have a friend who, when he shares his story, he tells of his dad who worked tirelessly for the family and they hardly ever saw him. But as he tells the story, he says, yeah, my dad said that he didn't make enough money to pay for anything other than just the mortgage. So if we wanted food or clothing or gifts or anything special at all, we had to work for it ourselves. So his, he remembers his mom working uh, two jobs just to be able to put food on the table, to pay the utilities, that, that all the kids had to work if they wanted clothes, they wanted to play sports. In fact, they could hardly play sports because they had to work all the time. So he, he grew up with this idea that he was very poor. And then he found out just a, a few years ago that all, the lo- all along his dad was a millionaire. And he'd been holding all this money, never letting the family knew that he had it for them. And my friend had to wrestle with this idea that all his life he had been living with the, the concept of being poor and a father who he thought was doing good but really wasn't. He was actually withholding good. And he's still working through how to kind of translate the world now through that narrative because it's really broken his view, as you can imagine, what God is like. And what Jesus is saying here is he's saying, hey, I want you to know it's a good thing for you to recognize your spiritual poverty because there's riches in Christ Jesus for every one of you if you want them. And you don't have a poor dad who's holding out on you. He's not somehow lacking in generosity or lacking in provision. He's not worried about tomorrow. He's got everything that's necessary for your flourishing and he wants to give it to you, but you gotta recognize you actually need it from him. But he's not holding it back. I want you to hear this. Blessed are the poor in spirit because theirs is the kingdom of heaven. You have access to the riches of God in Christ Jesus to have a flourishing life. Paul prays this for the church in Ephesus. 
Ephesians 1, he says, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints. Chapter three, verse 14, another prayer. For this reason, I bow my knees before the Father, Paul says, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named, that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you being rooted and grounded in love may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and the length and the height and the depth to know this love of Christ that surpasses knowledge that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think according to the power at work within us to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever, amen. Paul's saying, I, I just wish your eyes would be open to see the riches that are yours in Christ. That to be impoverished in spirit is a good thing because you're saying, I need something other than what I've got in me. I need someone else to come in and change what's going on inside of me. To be poor in spirit, you need to see your need. You need to see that you need a savior. And not just once, but every single day of your life. And then you confess that out loud. And you confess not only that you need, but that Jesus is what you need. And that Jesus has done what you need. And then as you do that, you say, Jesus, will you pour into me by your spirit all that I need so that you can be for me what I cannot be for others. You know, when I work through my own struggle and the Lord says, Jeff, you're you're not very present with your wife. You're not very present with your kids. You've not been very present in your friendships. And he shows me that. I could, I could be overwhelmed with guilt and shame, but that would, that would only crush me. He doesn't want the awareness of my need to lead me to depend on me to fill the need. And for some of you, when you become aware of your need, you just go inward and you think about how you can satisfy or meet that need with yourself. He wants me to go upward when I see the need. And so when I see I'm not very present and I say that, Lord, I'm not very present, I see that. I'm very consumed with me at times. And then I can say that I am spiritually needy. But Jesus, you were very present in flesh as a human and lived a life of presence wherever you went. And you were present on the cross when you said, Father, forgive them, they don't know what they were doing. And that wasn't just for the people in the crowds, but that was for me. Your presence on the cross was for me. And Jesus, when you went to the grave and you were buried, you brought my sin to the grave. You left it there and then you rose again and you were present with your people, giving them hope that you have all authority in heaven and on earth, that you'll be with us always to the end of the age. And now I have your presence in me by your spirit because of what you've done through the cross. And now you are present before God the Father, pleading my case on a regular basis that what you've done is for me, that your righteousness is mine in exchange for my sin because you are present, Jesus. Will you now not only forgive me for not being present in a loving way to my family, but will you help me to be present 
as you are with the Father and you were with humanity and you are with me, will you now enable me to be present with others? I confess my need. I confess my need for Jesus. I invite him to be for me what I cannot be. And I hear the words of John 15. Apart from me, Jeff, you can do nothing. But if you remain in me and I in you, you'll bear much fruit. I am the vine and you are the branches. Apart from me, you can't do this, Jeff. But if you abide in me, my life will work itself out through you. And so my spiritual poverty is like the branch disconnected from the vine. But as I come to him and say, I need you and you are for me what I can't be for others, will you now fill me and enable me and change me that what I get to experience is the vine giving life to the branch and producing fruit of presence for my family. This is what it means to flourish. It's to not be afraid to see my need because I know the riches of heaven are there to meet me in my poverty. I wonder if you are aware of the good news of seeing how messed up you are. It's really good and really painful. For those who already see it, I encourage you to to join in with Paul and say, would you open my eyes to the depths of the riches that you have for me in Christ? For those who are not there yet, just stick with us through the sermon I mean, the sermon series, and you'll quickly find out how spiritually impoverished you are. I promise you. Some of you are going, I'm not coming back. I don't want to see it. Please stay with us because God wants to be the grand physician of your life and show you the areas of your life that don't look like him where you're not really flourishing. Not so that he'll crush you under the weight of guilt and shame, but rather so he might lead you to the fullness of Jesus Christ as your only hope to change your life. Amen? I pray that that happens. It'll only happen if we realize that we are the ones who are in need. And in order to receive, we have to actually acknowledge our need. Let's pray. Father, we say right now with the scriptures that Jesus is our righteousness. That he is the spiritual riches that we need. That impoverished souls can be satisfied and filled with the riches that are beyond our comprehension in Christ Jesus. Pour out your spirit on us. Change us from the inside out. Reveal to us what we don't yet see and remind us as we see it that you're sufficient for our need. Let us not be crushed under the weight of shame or guilt because of the ways we fall short, but rather lead us to the sufficiency of Jesus Christ in the awareness of our deep need for you. Lord, thank you for you Thank you for the way you're doing that in me. I'm, I'm grateful that you're not done with me. I pray that you would help all of us to not be afraid to see the truth because we have the riches to meet the need when we see it. Fill us now and remind us again of the joy in Christ we have. We pray this in his name, amen.